This is Halo Bean. And you're listening to WCBN FM. Ann Arbor. 88.3. Bingo. Good afternoon. This is the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. My guest today is Margaret Lazarus Dean, and we're going to be talking about her first novel, The Time It Takes to Fall, which is hot off the presses. Um, Margaret has an anthropology degree from Wellesley College and an MFA from the University of Michigan. Um, stories out in places, including the Michigan Quarterly Review, there's a nonfiction piece in the current issue of Hopwood Winners from 2000 to 2006. And she's also a lecturer at the Sweetland Writing Center here in the Department of English at the University of Michigan. Margaret, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And we're going to start the show, as we always do, with a little bit from the book. So if you want to set us up with a little stuff, or if you want to just launch right in, um, it's up to you. Um, This part of the book is from shortly after the explosion of the space shuttle challenger it's a it's a school scene oh and let's sort of give a little background there too so this is a coming-of-age story about a girl named Dolores who's about 11 12 13 at the time of the book yeah she's 13 at the time of the of the disaster and it's 1986 which is when the Columbia space shuttle explodes the first time we've lost people in the US space program challenger Sorry, Columbia, that was 2003, wasn't it? It was. I got my sissies all mixed up. It's a problem. Yeah, so so the Space Shuttle Challenger 1986 blows up. All the students congregated in the cafeteria at lunchtime. Several TVs were switched to the news. Tina, Kiara, and I drifted toward the back of the room and stood at the edge of of a clump of people talking together. A kid I didn't know was describing excitedly how he had found something washed up on the beach near his house. NASA had warned people not to touch any debris they might come across, especially the small tanks filled with rocket fuel to power the shuttle's maneuvering thrusters. The tanks could blow up spontaneously, the paper said. I swear to God, when I went out there in the morning, there were a bunch of heat tiles and a whole chunk of external tank, he said. But the weirdest thing was, there was a glove. Did you keep any of it? Tina asked him. Now my mom called NASA like you're supposed to. A glove, someone repeated. Like from a spacesuit? Like from a spacesuit, the kid confirmed. It was white and silver, you know, with the rubber fingertips. I was so sicked out, I like almost lost my lunch. You should call Channel 7, a girl near him said. Some of the news stations had featured local residents who found interesting debris. I thought again of the reporter my father had met at the launch of 51F, the way he told my father to call him if he learned anything new. I hadn't understood at the time what he might have meant. Was there a hand in it? Kiara called. Only Tina and I could tell that she didn't believe him. I didn't look, the kid cried. My mom called NASA and they came and picked it all up. All I know is the NASA guys who showed up made everyone leave the area and I saw them with one of those boxes that said, caution, human remains on it. Oh my God, squealed a girl sitting next to him, holding her hands up against her mouth. Oh please, I scoffed quietly. I'd meant to speak only for Tina and Kiara's benefit, but everyone turned to look at me, including the beach house kid. What did you say? He asked. Well, it's just that there couldn't have been a hand in it, I explained, feeling myself blush harder and harder. 
Why not? asked the girl who'd put her hands over her mouth. The astronauts don't wear spacesuits for launch anymore, I explained. They just wear those blue flight suits. No gloves. Everyone looked at the beach house kid. He was working his mouth back and forth, looking at me with hatred. Everyone remembered the walkout, the seven astronauts strutting out of operations and checkout wearing those blue suits. We'd seen it a million times since then. They carry pressure suits on board for the spacewalks, I offered him. Maybe the glove was from one of those. But now that the glove was empty, no one cared what the beach house kid had found anymore. I felt unaccountably sorry for him, for a simple desire to own something that the rest of us would want to crowd around him and examine with him, poke at with our toes. Everyone else seemed annoyed with me, too. They knew I was right, but they would rather have been allowed to go on believing him. I decided to keep my mouth shut for the rest of the day, and I did, through other implausible debris stories and theories about the accident's cause that denied the laws of physics. As Tina and Chiara and I left the building and drifted toward our buses, I lit another cigarette from my mother's pack. I'd worried I would look stupid doing it, but I lit it smoothly and inhaled easily while they watched. It was like I'd been doing it all my life. Everything about it seemed familiar. The match catching the crispy ends of tobacco at the cigarette's tip, the rich, dirty feeling of the smoke pulling into my lungs. Tina and Chiara exclaimed briefly over my smoking, but not as much as I had expected. They each took one, and then we were smoking together, the three of us. I could see already how yesterday's events would become shaped and smoothed over. Sitting on the afternoon bus, I heard my first Challenger jokes. What does NASA stand for? Need another seven astronauts. What were Krista McAuliffe's last words? What's this button do? It's hard to imagine laughing at such jokes, but I did. Not the way I laughed at things that were actually funny, but I laughed all the same. I opened my mouth and out came a sort of dry, sarcastic, incredulous sound. Thank you. That's Margaret Lazarus Dean reading from The Time It Takes to Fall, her first novel, Just Out. Well, let's talk about disasters and the tall tales and real tales that they breed. Um, in this story, you have a 13-year-old who's actually skipped eighth grade to be in the high school, and she knows more than everyone around her about science anyway, um, and about sort of deductive reasoning and that sort of thing. So you have a, a very smart, intellectually precocious young woman, um, and a bunch of other folks sort of making stuff up. How did you balance this real occurrence, the the disaster in 2000, or sorry, the, in the tragedy in 2000? I can't do it. I'm, I'm going to go to Columbia all day long. 1986. 1986. The Challenger um, explosion in 1986. Um, how did you get from this real occurrence to the novel that we have before us today? Um, that's a good question. I mean, sort of the, the seed of the novel was something I read in the late 90s on a website that... Um, it was a Challenger website, and there was a, a page on the site that invited people to post... Um, stories about where they were and what they were doing on the day that the Challenger exploded. Um, and I have no idea why I was even looking at this website in the first place, but I was sort of amazed when I came across this forum of memories because there were 10,000 of them, even though this was in, you know, 98, 99, not that many people were spending all their time on the web yet. Um, and one of the postings I came across had been written by a woman who was the same age as me. She was 13 the day of the disaster. And she wrote about um, being in a classroom, as so many kids our age were, watching it on a TV in a classroom. Um, but once she and her classmates realized that it had exploded, that something had gone wrong, she said, we ran outside to see it in the sky. 
And the, the signature line of her post put her in Christmas, Florida, which is a small town near the Space Coast. Um, and I just sort of filed that away in my mind because there was something that really captivated me about the way that they watched on TV just like everyone else up until the point they realized that something had gone wrong and then they wanted to be outside. They wanted to be in the same space with the disaster in a way. Um, so that was sort of the seed of the whole novel for me and I had to learn a whole lot about Challenger and a lot about the space shuttle and NASA history and why they went up in Florida and what it means to Florida that they're there. I had to sort of learn everything else, but that one seed of it kind of kept me going through all of that. I just felt like there was a story kind of compacted into that that was just waiting to come out. And let's talk a little bit about, um, you have this very smart little girl and a lot of your, well, a lot of what I was able to dig up, um, stories, nonfiction and fiction have to do with, um, smart women characters. Um, there's a story on poor Mojo's almanac called Countess Tolstoy and Mrs. Nabokov reminisce in heaven. Well, I um, can't believe you found that. Well, I, you know, there's Google now. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've learned to use the old internet. Luddite that I am, I still know how to use it, I guess. Um, and then your story that's out, um, your nonfiction, your essay that's out in um, the Michigan Quarterly Review is called The Imaginary Athlete and is about Ilya Borders, who played pro baseball. Um, is there something that um, you can sort of articulate that drives you to these very exceptional women, whether they're kids or adults, and, and makes them the sort of centerpiece of the work that you do? It's interesting because I, I never really thought about that connection between between things that I've written. Um, I think I'm, I'm interested in characters who are sort of easily overlooked by everyone else in the narrative. And I think that's true of Dolores. She's a kid. Um, you know, she's just a normal kid living in a small town. Her family isn't very rich. In fact, they're pretty lower middle class. Um, she just she doesn't really have any power in society at all, just by dint of being a 13-year-old and being a girl. Um, and I guess in general, I'm interested in characters who are overlooked, that don't seem to have any power in the narrative. But if you go into their perspective, you can see the story in a different way. Um, and especially it becomes interesting when those kind of characters try to take some power in the narrative, which I guess is true for the other stories that you mentioned as well. Um, oftentimes these people who are overlooked, the story really is about them, or they really do play an important role in the story. But the traditional way that these stories are told, they tend not to be about little girls or women. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of an interesting connection. When you, you studied anthropology as an undergraduate, yeah, and then did you come straight to study creative writing, or did you do take some time in between undergrad and grad school? I took some time. I took four years altogether between undergrad and grad school, um, partly just because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But even once I reached the point where I knew that I wanted to be a writer, I wasn't sure right away that I had to go to grad school to do that. And in fact, I didn't have to, but I reached a point where I realized that I was never actually going to write very much unless I made some major change in my life. It's just really hard to, you know, work, take care of yourself as a young person, pay off, let's say you have massive student loans from an Ivy League school, um, that I needed to really make a change to move and to be able to quit my job and to really make a commitment to writing. And coming here to Michigan was especially helpful to me because there's just such an amazing community of writers here, not only the students and the faculty in the program, but people who then hang around living in Ann Arbor for years afterward. Um, so that became a really important part of 
sort of the process I needed to go through in order to actually write a book. And for writing this book, you um, had never taken physics before, either in college or high school, so you sat in on some physics classes here at the University of Michigan. That's true. Did you also bring um, some of the methodology and stuff that you learned as an anthropology student into the research for the book, or um, was there another sort of framework that you used to kind of come up with the facts that would make this story, based on an actual historical event, come to life as a believable story? Yeah, I guess... I guess you could say my way of researching was more anthropological than anything else. I mean, I, w- I read a lot of really technical things, but I was always sort of reading with an eye toward how did these people work together to create what they created, whether that was the space shuttle or just Florida culture in general, or the sort of narratives about the disaster that developed afterward. Um, I think I maybe because of my training or maybe because that was a way I was interested in looking at the world to begin with. I, I tend to see things in terms of how does everyone sort of implicitly agree on a narrative together without ever really talking about it. That's always an interesting way of, of looking at things for me. And you're from uh, Minnesota. That's right. And spent some time in D.C. as a kid as well. Did it, have I got that right? Right. Um, but not Florida. Was it hard to sort of get into the culture of Florida and particularly the, the seacoast, um, the space coast, rather? Yeah, it was hard, and it seemed... Um, it seemed really obnoxious to me in some ways to try writing about someone who grows up in a place that actually wasn't my place. Um, because I, I think place is really important to people's experience. And, you know, I care deeply about Minnesota and just the way that things are there and the landscape. And I, I kept thinking as I was working on this book, you know, I would feel weird if someone tried to set a story in, in where I grew up and then I found out they weren't from there. I would maybe really have a problem with that. Um, but I kept doing it anyway because that's where the story takes place, and that was just the way that it needed to, to come together, I felt. So I really I read as much as I could. I, I spent time there. I talked to people from there, but um, I, I had to make a lot up, and I, I keep hoping that I got it right. <laughs> well, um, a lot of the story takes place, although it's in Florida, it takes place in, in classrooms at school or in the mall or, you know, in places that are familiar to most folks in the country who grew up in sort of the suburbanization moment. Right, right. And it was helpful for me that the 80s was really the time when a sort of homogenous suburban culture started to take over the country, that things became not so different between Florida and Minnesota because kids were hanging at the mall and listening to prints and wearing the same clothes. And so that was that was helpful to me that uh, that was that happened to be the time when that started to take over. Well, we listened to a little Prince when we started the show, and uh, we're going to listen to a little Cars right now and take a short break. You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Margaret Lazarus-Dean, and we're talking about her novel, The Time It Takes to Fall. We'll be right back. Sunny my sights 
You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Margaret Dean, and we're talking about the time it takes to fall. And those were the cars from 1986. That was what was playing on the radio when um, the Challenger space shuttle fell. Um, do you want to explain the title? Will that wreck anything? I don't think so. Um, I mean, most people knew, know that the space shuttle Challenger exploded in 1986, so that's not a spoiler. Um, but the title of the book comes from a turning point in the book where the character learns that the astronauts actually survived the initial explosion um, because the crew capsule was really sealed separately from the rest of the space shuttle and that they fell in that crew capsule eight miles from the point they'd reached in the sky and that they probably were alive and conscious until the crew capsule hit the ocean. Um, which is something that most people didn't know about at the time and that people still don't seem to know um, just from talking to people. Um, so the the title comes from a sort of key scene in the book where the character, because she's very good at physics, decides to figure out how long it would have taken them to fall those eight miles. Um, and thinking about that really kind of changes the way that she thinks about the accident and about NASA and her family and America and everything. Two and two and a half minutes, two minutes and forty-five seconds. Yeah, two minutes and forty-five seconds. Yeah, you mentioned in the first segment of the show um, that you were interested in the narratives that folks agree on, what what they agree to tell, and um, this time it takes to fall um, changes Dolores, the main character's perspective, and everyone around them who knew about who figured that out. Um, it sort of cracks open innocence um, and. Um, notions of safety. Um, not unlike 9-11 cracked open our um, illusions of safety and, and uh, you know, sort of innocence here in the United States. Um, would you talk a little bit about um, what you think about U.S. innocence or, you know, the sort of our ethic or aesthetic or culture of um, feeling safe and what we are um, in light of the fact that actually many disasters happen in the world, including on home soil, so to speak, or cars, you can run, get run over by the bus actually right outside here. So um, this notion of innocence and, and how and whether and why we can also have a notion of losing it. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question because talk about disasters oftentimes seems to revolve around an idea of innocence. That like no matter how many bad things have happened, when the new bad thing happens, Everyone always says, we never thought that could happen. Um, even though, you know, bad things just keep on happening. So I, I think um, that was something that writing this book has really made me think about and thinking about other disasters and disasters that have occurred subsequently. I think um, when I, I was writing on this writing this book um, on September 11th, 2001, and I, I at first sort of thought, well, now I can't write this book anymore, right? Like it kind of doesn't make sense anymore to have a story where seven people dying who were who were volunteers knew they were doing something risky is like a huge disaster in the book because that's just not that huge a disaster anymore. Um, and yet in, in thinking about it, I sort of came back to the idea that it really was a huge disaster in 1986. Like nothing like this had ever happened before. And for kids our age, it was absolutely the worst thing that had ever happened, and it was a complete loss of innocence. So the fact that it's sort of been eclipsed by things that happened later 
really doesn't change the way it felt to be that age and to see this happen. Um, and it's interesting because I've been talking to my students about this a little bit. They are college freshmen. They had not been aware until I told them that a space shuttle exploded in 1986. It's just, it's not on their radar because they were born in 1989. But these guys happen to have been 13 in 2001. And so they have a memory that's kind of oddly similar to mine of, you know, coming home from school and watching TV all evening, seeing the same footage roll over and over again and thinking, you know, what's happened? My country has changed. My sense of safety has changed. My sense of innocence is gone. Um, and this happened when they were 13. So it's kind of odd to me that as different as the disasters are, they really feel similar to people going through them, you know, regardless of the scale. Do you think we sort of look for galvanizing moments around which to hinge a sort of inherent transition from childhood to adulthood that, that happens in adolescence? That could be. I mean, I think the Challenger disaster really feels different to people who are remembering being a certain age. People who are remembering being kids or young teenagers um, have just a much stronger, more emotional memory of it than people who are a little bit older who maybe remember um, seeing the Apollo rockets take off, knowing that that was really risky and unsafe. Um, but for kids our age, the space shuttle had been taking off since before we were born. So we just felt this was normal, you know, space shuttles take off just like cars go and computers compute things for us and it was just part of the landscape so I think yeah just the just the fact that it felt so different for kids and for adults is a uh, is one of the reasons why people our age sort of tend to talk about that event as a turning point as a I think they remember where they were and what they were doing and kind of get upset again talking about it even which is a little different for people who are older yeah, well, hearing you describe that, it sounds a lot like what I've heard people describe when, um, who are older than both of us, um, who were around when um, Kennedy was assassinated or when JFK or Robert or when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Mm-hmm. People say, oh, I know exactly where I was. I can remember what I was doing mm-hmm. when we heard the announcement. Um, adults or children, you know, sort of school kids or, or a little bit older. But I think for my mother's generation, she remembers being in school right around adolescence and saying, oh, <laughs> Wow. Yeah, now this can happen. Yeah. Um, Is it so powerful um, because of the sort of value we have in the U.S. that that things are safe, that this is, I want to, the reason I'll sort of back up a little bit, um, I've been reading a little bit about James Polk and Manifest Destiny and the uh, Mexican-American War. Um, Polk was sort of an unknown when he came to the U.S. presidency, and um, campaign on a platform that he was going to be in office for four years and that was it and during those four years he was going to do x y and z and he pretty much accomplished all of that and among his list of things to do was uh, take over the whole continent and and um, essentially grab all the land from mexico because if that that went from missouri out to the pacific because um if we didn't do it well then you know um britain might or somebody else might france maybe or spain who knows but polk wanted it um, and there was there's a sense in the the writing about that moment that there was this kind of entitlement that well that's what we should we the manifest destiny you know it's 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 in our it's in it's in the stars for us to own all this land um, and I kind of wonder if if it isn't also in the stars for us to kind of to to feel somewhat invincible in this country 
um, and what that might mean vis-a-vis the rest of the world, because we are only a small portion of the planet in some respects, but we have a very large impact and feel that we have a, an even larger one. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of that attitude built into the space program, um, maybe not necessarily when it first started, because of course it started with a sense of urgency that the Russians were already so far ahead of us, they'd put a satellite into orbit, and we just had no idea how to be even begin thinking about doing that. Um, so the space program started with this sense of urgency that we had to become better than them really quickly. Um, and the fact that we did, basically, that we declared this ludicrous goal of getting to the moon and coming back by the end of the decade, and then that we actually did that, I think, um, is, yeah, it's a similar kind of American narrative. Like, there was no good reason why we should have been the first to do that rather than the Russians. Um, and partly we won the space race by making up for ourselves what would be the, the the goal. If the goal had been to get a satellite into space, then the Russians had already won it. So, of course, we had to kind of move the goalposts in order to make it possible for us to have won it. Um, but yeah, just the fact that that's the whole origin of the, of the space program. And then for kids born subsequently to grow up knowing we put a man on the moon, we keep sending shuttles into space, no one else can do that. No one else even tries to do that, I think is part of that sense of entitlement um, and made it all the more sort of disconcerting when suddenly the space shuttle blew up and no one knew why it had happened. Sorry, we have a caller. (laughs) We've never had a caller on this show. Um, But someone's called in to ask um, if you researched the O-ring aspect of the accident. Um, I sure did. Yeah, it's all over the novel. (laughs) Do you want to talk a little bit about the O-ring? I guess, I mean, I I know way too much now about the O-rings and the solid rocket boosters and why the disaster happened. To me, one of the more interesting things about it is that having zeroed in on the O-ring as the cause of the problem, it turns out the O-ring was really more of a symptom than the problem itself. And the real problem was that within NASA, the lines of communication between the engineers who actually knew that this thing could blow up when it was cold, between those people and the managers who ultimately made the decision whether to launch that morning or not, those lines of communication were not open as they needed to be. So, um, yeah, I mean, everyone sort of remembers from that time. The cause of this was the O-ring, and that was technically the physical cause. But the real cause was that these engineers, the night before the launch, were arguing, you can't send this thing up when it's below freezing outside. This O-ring will burn through, and that manager sent it up anyway. That's that's really an organizational or even cultural cause, rather than um, you know a part that you could Healthy get at part. a hardware store. Well, and we're going to talk in the the last segment of the show a little bit more about this notion of of good enough and channels of communication. Um, so we'll circle back there and we'll get back to some more O-ring conversation. Uh, um, thank you to the caller for um, asking the question. Um, it'll set us up well for where we're where we're going next. Uh, but before we take uh, another short break, I want to talk a little bit about this issue that you've raised about the space race. And um, during the Cold War, the beginnings, of, you know, sort of in the heart of the Cold War, um, the Russians had Sputnik up there and we had nothing. And so we said, all right, let's let's get to the moon. Um, and um, one of your characters, Dolores's father, is really interested in, and, and Dolores herself is really interested in this notion that, well, we should go into space for scientific reasons. We should sort of 
discover as opposed to land grab, you know, the equivalent of the land grab or the equivalent of a race. There are more noble reasons um, to explore. Um, before we take a break, would you talk a little bit about um, noble reasons versus less noble reasons for space exploration? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's interesting how those those two causes have always been sort of in conflict with each other, but they've also sort of worked together. Like NASA is mostly a scientific organization. They mostly are interested in the science of what they're doing and that manned spaceflight is something they do almost to to help get it paid for because the public really enjoys manned spaceflight and we support NASA a lot more than I think we would if we didn't get to see astronauts go into space. So I think there's always been sort of an uneasy alliance between those two goals which feel kind of contradictory and yet in order for NASA to work as a federal agency, which is kind of amazing. This is the only country that still puts that kind of money into that kind of exploration. Um, both goals sort of need to be hidden behind one another, depending on who they're talking to, which is interesting. Well, we're going to stop there then, and uh, it's a the top of the hour, so we have to do our legal ID. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Margaret Lazarus-Dean. We're talking about the time it takes to fall. We'll be right back. Dire Straits, a little bit of music from 1986, and you're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and the reason we're listening to music from 1986 is because we're talking about Margaret Lazarus Dean's novel, The Time It Takes to Fall, which takes place in 1986, when the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded. So, we'll talk about aliens and alienation for the end, <laughs> for the last bit of the show. Um, and to do that, I want to talk a little bit about um, Lisa Nowak and love triangles. <laughs> Why not, I say? <laughs> um, <laughs> you wouldn't be the first to ask me about it. About, yeah. So, for those who are listening who don't know who I'm talking about, a, an astronaut fairly recently drove to Florida with the alleged intent of possibly knocking off her husband's lover. Is that a fair... I think it was the the lover of a fellow astronaut whom oh. she was interested in and um. may or may not have actually been having a relationship with. Yeah. So all three it. in the triangle were, were astronauts. That's, that's part of the drama. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> it just gets better and better. It just gets better and better. You couldn't invent this. You really couldn't. <laughs> in fact, if you wrote this, I wouldn't believe it. No. No. Um... So um, here we have NASA, and we've got three astronauts in this crazy National Enquirer kind of scandal, only it's in real news. It's a, it's a real thing that's happening. Um, and back to O-rings. Um, the problem with the Challenger tragedy had less to do with mechanical failures and with issues of design than with um, decisions that were made about um, known issues. Um, and... 
we're dealing with human lives in this case, and we're also dealing with a narrative, a country's narrative that says, no, we can go to space, we should go to space, let's go to space, it's cold in January, but let's go, you know, we've got to get up there. Um, so I want to talk about the conflict between um, what we say we are about and what we say we should do, and what we really like the sort of the science versus the marketing question is kind of where I'm headed with this. Um, real science would have said, no, we're not going up today. It's too cold. We're going to have some failures. In fact, the night before the launch, um, there, there's a recorded conversation where the engineers are saying, no, we shouldn't fly. Um, but NASA saying, no, we are going to fly. Um, and then the disaster happened. Will you talk a little bit about um, this crazy sort of human element that gets in the way of maybe um, the back to the more nobler the nobler goals that we were talking about yeah I think one of the things that's that's strange actually even about that decision on the eve of the launch a lot of people heard about that you know there's a presidential commission that looked into the causes they found out about this they wrote about the the teleconference the night before and they wrote about the bad decision chain um, just as much as they did about the o-ring and the problem with the rockets and I think a lot of people heard the outcome of that and thought oh these managers wanted to stay on schedule, and so they knowingly gambled with people's lives. Um, and actually, it turns out that that's not the case. More investigation has shown that really everyone who is part of the decision chain did everything they were supposed to do according to their engineering ethics. Everyone tried to do the right thing, it seems, and to act um, in order to preserve the safety of the of the mission and the crew, um, which makes it all the more interesting, I think, that they still made such a wrong decision and and had this failure that was that was preventable. That's almost more interesting, I think, than if they were sort of coldly calculating, like, well, they might die, but we have to get them up there anyway. Actually, the next day, President Reagan had been planning to talk to the crew live during his State of the Union address. So there were a lot of conspiracy theories that whether there was pressure from the White House to get them up there or that NASA felt their own internal pressure to get them up there in order to have this amazing free advertising during the State of the Union address. I mean, it, it sort of makes you wonder, what was that supposed to distract us from if he was just going to be chatting with astronauts during this address? But um, um, no good evidence has, has been found, that, that I've heard of at least, that there was any pressure explicit or, or implicit from the White House. Well, I've been cooking up a little conspiracy theory that we'll throw at you to see if we All can. Right. Because I want to go back to, I said we were going to talk about aliens and alienation, and um, it's the the connections are, are thin, so you can do with them what you will. But, All right, let's um, do it. But let's, let's go for it. Um, this story is a story is a coming of age story. It's not just a story about what happened. This is not a nonfiction account of the space shuttle challenger. This is an account of an American family from the perspective of a thirteen year old, well, eleven to thirteen year old girl. Um, so it's really a story about adolescence in a lot of respects and about what was happening with U.S. families um, in the eighties and a lot of stuff was going on in these. We had Reaganomics. We had um, some questionable fashion choices. <laughs> <laughs> We had a lot of stuff going on in the 80s in the U.S. Um, and in this book, we have adolescence, which is just this crazy time of life. Um, and I, would you talk about the um, ways in which the, the stories we make up about things um, help shield us from just the sort of craziness of turning 13 and turning 12 and dealing with girls and boys and, you know, whatever 
goes broken families um divorce was on the rise in a in a way that was unprecedented in sort of u s history beginning in the eighties yeah i think it, i i hadn't really been thinking about it in these terms when I started the book, but the more sort of layers I added to the plot that the the challenger would be one layer and then there would be the sort of disaster going on within the family would be another layer. And then in the character's social life, there's also kind of disaster, you know, just the disaster of being 13, I guess, becomes prevalent. And as the book went on, I really became conscious of how at every layer, what was happening was a disaster, just very different kinds of disasters. Most of them um, were very private and internal to either one person or to a family, but that these were kind of getting echoed by the bigger disasters of the shuttle or even what was happening at a national level. Um, so that sort of led me to become really interested in disasters in general and what are they and how do people talk about them and what are sort of, again, the narratives that we all agree on about disasters and the meanings that we have to give them in order to be able to move on with our lives. Again, both those personal disasters and the big public ones that affect a lot of people. Well, and you've been quoted elsewhere as saying that your next big project will ha- will do- deal with disasters too, and that um, one of the things that interests you is the ways in which disasters reveal who we were in the first place. Um, how is it that they do that? Yeah, I think it's it's not so much the disaster itself always as the the narrative that comes out of it sort of reveals who we thought we were before that. So with Challenger, really the overarching memory that people have is this loss of faith in science and technology or this loss of faith in what it means to be American or what the government is capable of. Um, In that loss of faith and loss of innocence, if you sort of reverse engineer, really implies up to that time we thought that we could put our faith into this stuff and that everything would always be okay. Um, And kind of similarly with September 11th, 2001, all of the sort of narratives that came out of that, we thought they would never attack us here, we thought this kind of thing would never happen, doesn't take a lot to get back to, oh, so we thought we could do whatever we wanted and then that nothing would ever come here. Turns out that's not the case. So it's oftentimes the reaction more so than the disaster itself that kind of reveals what what all these underlying assumptions were that no one ever talked about or or even understood because they were assumptions. Do you think it's that we have a, a sort of that we make a career out of having those all those assumptions about stuff um, for a particular reason or is it just sort of what it is. Yeah, I think everyone does it. I mean, you can make it sound nefarious, but I think every culture has these sort of assumptions just in able to in, in order to be able to sort of build any beliefs, you need certain axiomatic beliefs that are not allowed to be questioned. Um, so it's interesting that these events keep coming along that then force us to question them. Um, and then I feel like we have a choice. We can either realize we've questioned them and make something good about out of that, and um, oftentimes disasters do have those kinds of results, or we can kind of put every try to put everything back in the box and pretend that it didn't happen, um, and that that can be, maybe that's the best thing to do sometimes, but I also think that can be very damaging, um, and if nothing else, ensures that nothing positive can can come from what happened. Well, since the the Challenger disaster in 86, there have been some notable ones. Um, The uh, 
Hurricane Katrina in, in Louisiana and um, the Gulf area, the Gulf Coast, and um, 9-11 is a big one that your students now can point to and say, well, this is what happened when I was 13. Um, do you think we're learning? Is there a learning curve? Are we getting sort of wiser as a populace? That's a really good question. I, I don't know if if we have enough data to really say that, but I thought that the reaction to Katrina was actually more thoughtful and nuanced than I would have thought. Just the fact that, you know, watching the evening news sort of as the story unfolded, um, you know, the, the broadcast channels on the evening news were talking about race and poverty and you know, how how did the federal government forget that these people exist? And how is the general public across the country so shocked to see these people in poverty? Um, and that, that that conversation really started as a result of that disaster. That kind of surprised me. I think if I'd had to guess what would happen, we would have talked about weather. We would have talked about, you know, aid and relief in this very basic Red Cross kind of way. And then we would have moved on without really getting at those underlying layers of why did this happen socially, not just why did this happen in terms of a terrible weather event. Um, so I was I was kind of heartened by that, actually. I mean, I'm not sure if enough actually came of that, probably not, but that at least that's become part of the narrative. You know, if you ask someone 10 years on, what was Hurricane Katrina, what was it about, the words race and poverty, I think, will come out even in their very short sort of thumbnail explanation of what happened and and I think that's important. Do you think that folks are finding news where are they finding it? In the story, um, the passage I asked you to read in the first section, um, tall tales are happening, and then the main character, Dolores, says, oh, well, that couldn't happen. But the whole school class is ready to believe something um, that just couldn't be true, um, because it makes a good story. Human remains in a glove. Um, although it, it, um, there are, there is some sort of... Um, you know, as in with Hurricane Katrina, we'll talk about race and poverty when, you know, even in the thumbnail sketch, as you mentioned. Um, are there also sort of tall tales that are making for better entertainment um, that might even weigh more heavily in memory than, um, than the truth? Yeah, and I, I think that's the problem sort of with the thumbnail sketch is that it's always going to be a little oversimplified and it's always going to leave out certain details. Um, I mean, it interests me that the details that get left out are sometimes the ones that seem to have the most human interest. Like with Challenger, the fact that the astronauts survived the accident and were probably awake while they fell for almost three minutes, to me... That's really compelling, and that I mean, that's something that once I learned it, it stayed with me. And if anyone asked me to summarize, you know, in a hundred words or less, what happened that day, that would definitely make the cut. So it's interesting to me that something so compelling and violent, which is what you think would capture people's imagination, has been left out, and then you have to ask why. You know, what what aspect is it of that detail that we'd rather not take with us in sort of collective memory as we move on? Um, so that's interesting to me, actually, that the entertainment value is is not the first priority. The first priority is, I think, what can we feel okay about remembering as we move on? 
Well, that's a good thought to leave our listeners with for the day. (laughs) Um, It's about time to wrap up, but I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And sharing um, your new book. You're reading tonight at Shaman Drum at 7 p.m. Is that, do I have all the right details? That's correct. 7 p.m. Shaman Drum on State Street. Margaret Lazarus Dean will be reading from The Time It Takes to Fall. You've been listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. I'd like to thank you for tuning in and thank Chaz Barrett for engineering the show and thank Margaret Lazarus Dean for joining me today. You can find archives of the show at wcbn.org slash livingwriters or on podcasts. Next week, Ayelet Waldman will join host Rachel Harkai for the show, and the sports report is next. Yeah.